You know, that was pretty bad. I figure if I start off bad, maybe it'll get better, you know? So, <laughs> so well, good morning. It is good to worship with you, and uh, it's good to begin a new year, uh, whatever that means and whatever that might look like. And uh, I was even thinking as much as we might miss the decorations of Christmas and everything else, it is kind of a reminder of, of fresh starts, so to speak, and chances. We actually get that opportunity every morning, um, but it's certainly good to do that um, beginning a new year together. And so uh, the month of, of January, we're kind of going to look at some uh, Christianity 101 kind of stuff um, and uh, go through some of that, and then we're going to follow that by doing uh, a series on Proverbs with various uh, men preaching and, uh, and, and going through something like we did with uh, Psalms uh, a couple years ago, and, uh, and then we'll be up to Easter. So that's kind of the general direction of where we're headed. Uh, men, we'd love to see you jump in uh, with our Friday night and Saturday morning, uh, well, less than two weeks now. It'll be history in two weeks. Um, but we're going to look at Matthew and uh, we're going to look at Jesus' calling of Matthew, the change that Christ made in his life, and talk about how do we reach the Matthews of our culture? How do we, how do we reach out to them? We are going to share the Lord's Supper um, as a part of our dedication. So we're using this morning really kind of as, as a dedication, and uh, we're going to lead into that, and we're going to use the Lord's Supper uh, to center that around, that's certainly appropriate, um, of His great love for us. If you're unfamiliar with the Lord's Supper, if you're unfamiliar with how we view it and how we practice it, uh, there is in your bulletin um, something about that, and just would encourage you to take a look at that. I want to ask you to picture something with me. What if in 2019, should the Lord not return, and should we be alive one year from now. But what if each and every one of us, whether we're long-term members or you just came this morning and the Lord calls you to be a part of what He is doing here at Calvary, what if whether you're a child or whether you're a senior, what if each of us who are followers of Jesus Christ developed two people this year who currently have no relationship with Jesus Christ, and God would be pleased to let us develop them so that one year from the day they would know Christ as our Lord and Savior. What if? One whole year, each one of us is used by the Lord to bring the gospel and the transforming work to two people. We'll just kind of hold that for a few moments, and we will return back to that and grab a Bible, grab a copy of the Scriptures, electronic or otherwise, and uh, if uh, you want to, using the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, there's the page number that we're on. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to jump into verses uh, 5 through 9 down there. Um, but let me just remind you a little bit about this letter uh, that the Spirit of God gave 
to the Apostle Paul in all of its perfections uh, for the sake of all of the generations since it's been written, and we have the pleasure and the privilege of looking at it this morning. The church at Corinth, of course, was begun uh, by the Apostle Paul and some of uh, his cohorts in church planting. And one of the things that the church at Corinth shared with all other churches is that it had people in it. And you know what that means. It means self-absorption. It means getting off track with God, as well as doing things that only God can do through people. And so any church has that mixture within it. And we so benefit by this letter because the Apostle Paul addresses issues that were percolating within this local church. And he just doesn't deal with the symptoms, but he gets down to what's, what's going on under the surface out of which these symptoms are percolating. And so after he begins the letter, the first, what, about nine verses talking about the marvelous redemption of each and every person who's a part of the church there at Corinth, how they're saints, how God has been faithful to miraculously save them, he begins dealing with some of the things that were not of the Lord in that local church. And so in chapter 1, uh, verse 11, he says, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, and they're the ones who tattled on you, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. And so there was these huge divisions about people saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas or Peter, and I'm of Christ. And by the way, them saying I'm of Christ was not a good thing for them to say. What they're saying is, is I don't need anybody else. I'm always right because I'm of Christ. And those are almost the most dangerous people oftentimes. Um, and so he, he raises this issue there, and, and he begins to address it. And as you go through the rest of the book, you'll realize that he has to address immaturity and how many in the church really were okay with being immature. Uh, but that's not okay. Uh, about how they would take people to court to settle matters that ought to be settled within the church, how they weren't loving uh, a man who was deep in ongoing sin by dealing with that, and they weren't loving the church in that, uh, dealing with various issues related to marriage, chapter 7, in verses 8, 9, and 10, addressing the issues of how many in the church continued to participate in cultural celebrations that, that they said, I have the freedom in Christ to do this. And Paul says, uh, no Christian should participate in things that are a part of worshiping demons and are rampant with immorality. That's not freedom in Christ. And so he addresses that, and then he addresses in 12 through 14, uh, people saying, my gift's better than your gift. 
and the whole competitiveness about spiritual giftedness within the church, and right in the middle of that, we have that amazing, so helpful description of what real love is, just the opposite of that kind of an attitude. And then we have this great encouragement to live in light of the resurrection in 15. And so those are, those are all symptoms, but, but what he keeps returning to in the, in the book is he keeps getting below the symptoms, and he says, here's the reason these symptoms keep popping up. You have a, a very wrong understanding of who God is and what real wisdom is, and you're, and you're not living out your genuine calling because, uh, based upon who you are. You're confused about your own identity. I mean, we think our country, and it is, has a lot of confusion about who we are. And, and the Corinthians wrestle with that, and it's at some level a wrestling match for every single person. It's just gone to amazing proportions in our own, own culture. And so he says, underneath all that is you're confused about the ways of God, and you're, con- you're confused about who you are as followers of Jesus Christ. If you, can, if you can concentrate and get the ways of God straight in your mind and heart, and, and who you are and what your calling is, then the whole symptoms disappear, and there's a health that comes from you, not just for your sake, but for the church and for the redemption of lost people. And so, concerning the, the ways of God, um, he, he addresses that right up front there, beginning of verse 18 of chapter 1 where he says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Boy, how often do we see that one? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so Paul right up front just says you need to get straight that God's ways are not your ways. You're going to be considered a fool. You're going to be looked at as idiotic. But God... If he were ever foolish, his foolishness is wiser than all the wisdom of all people ever put together. And God in his weakness is more powerful than all the power. Nuclear power, people power, put it all together. And so he says, you need to make sure that you keep straight about who God is. As we just sang, he is the answer. He is the way, isn't he? He is the way. And then in in chapter 3, the verses that we want to look at, Paul says, don't forget what your calling is. Don't forget what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And so he uses this analogy. Let's jump in there at verse uh, 5. And he, and he returns back to this disunity. I am of Paul. Another, I am of Paulos. Are you not mere men? But verse 5 down through 9, this is where I want us to camp for a few minutes here. He says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And so Paul walks through here a a fairly common metaphor that we see Jesus, we see people use forever, the agricultural metaphor, and he simply asks the question, what, some of your translations say, who are Apollos and Paul? Now, he had to go ahead and answer this himself because they would have given a myriad of answers. And And their answers aren't necessarily wrong. Apollos and Paul, they're men. Apollos and Paul, they're followers of Jesus. Apollos and Paul, they're church planters. Um, There could be a lot of descriptions of what or who they are. But what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at is at our core, what are we? What are we? With all the other diversity, what are we at our core? And he says we are servants through whom, and in the text here he says, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gives opportunity to each one of us. He says, at our core, our identity is, we are servants of God, bringing the gospel to other people, as each is given the opportunity the opportunity in other people's lives, the opportunities in their own lives. He says, that's just fundamentally who we are. You can change a lot of other things maybe, but that's who we are. I'm not just a tent maker. I can get to the point where I'm not a tent maker, but you can't take this away. We are servants. The word servant is the word we use for deacon. It's the, it's the word used in Acts 6 of, of those who take something and serve the tables, serve it up for other people. And, and Paul is saying, Apollos and I are both servants of God. And we delivered this crazy message that most of the world mocks, but you know it, to be the power of God to salvation through that message you believed. You believed. And then he goes on, just to make sure and cut down on some of the competitiveness. He says, one servant, well, let me read the verse, because I kind of summarized it there. Um, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And so one servant plants, another servant waters, and God causes the growth. 
Paul is going to go out of his way here to make sure that everybody at the church at Corinth understands that the reason they believed was not because something flowed out of the Apostle Paul. It's not because something flowed out of Apollos. It's because God caused their growth. God caused them to believe. And he goes on and makes it even more clear in the next verse. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. And so the servants are not anything, but it is God who causes the growth. The Apostle Paul, as he so often does, goes out of the way to make sure that credit goes where credit is deserved. Why does a person believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do they become a follower of God? Because of God working. God works. And as he says in chapter 1, why is that true? So that your boasting and bragging will be in God. I mean, he goes out of his way in the first chapter there saying, don't brag about me, brag about God. He's the one who causes the growth. So the servants are not anything. They're not anything in the sense that no ability comes from within them to cause a person to believe that causes a person to grow spiritually. Only God, only God can cause that to happen. However, the servant who plants and the servant who waters are one. And each will receive his own reward according to their labor. And what Paul's saying is, as servants, we deliver the, the seed, the Word of God. We deliver the water, also a reference to the Word of God. We deliver that, and God takes what we delivered, and He causes people to believe. He causes people to grow. And so we do that as we're given opportunity, and, and what happens? God will reward us for that. God loves faithful servants. He loves servants who will bring the realities of who He is and the gospel to other people. Now, the question as we look at these verses is, was this only true of Paul and Apollos? Because we could walk away from this text saying, phew, I'm sure glad I'm not Paul. I'm sure glad I'm not Apollos. I'm just a pastor. So I don't, I don't have to do this. What do you say to that? Yeah, hogwash, huh? That's just a bunch of hogwash. Um, no. Now, you might say, well, okay, that's, this is then for church leaders. So it is true for me, but I'm not a pastor. So this isn't applicable to me. What do you say to that? Say the same thing, by the way. Yeah, hogwash. That's hogwash too. Why was there division? Why were they suing each other? Why was there marriage issues? Why? 
Underneath it all was a a misunderstanding about who God is and what is real wisdom that comes from Him and how His ways are so different than our ways and that there's a fundamental calling upon every single follower of Jesus' life to make disciples, to sow the seed, to water the seed and see what God might do through our lives in each and every opportunity. And the reality is, some will believe. Some will believe. We know this is generally applicable because Jesus made it applicable to all people. You watch him through the Gospels. I mean, John introduces him. uh, John the baptizer introduces him and says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to bring his wheat into his barn, heaven. That's the point of Jesus. Jesus sends out the 12, and he says, the fields are ripe. He sends out the 70, the fields are ripe, now go. And then he gives the great commission, go and make disciples of all people. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to put your name in here. I mean, you can put it right beside Paul and Apollos if you already filled in the blank on your notes. Just put your name right beside them because you have the same calling in that sense. And what is a primary identity for each of us as followers of Jesus? We are servants through whom others will believe. Even as the Lord gives opportunity to each. Now, He's going to give very different opportunities. And that's just His sovereign choice. But we are all servants through whom others will believe. That's just the way He's designed the kingdom to work. And so we could go on to these other and say, you know, I may plant in somebody's life. One of you may water that same person. Here's what we know. If they believe or they grow spiritually, who gets the credit? God gets the credit. God gets the credit. It wasn't some technique. It wasn't because I'm a pastor. It's just God loves to use foolish preaching and people hanging their hearts out there and telling them the truth. He just loves to use it. He causes the growth, but there is, there is a reward. God honors and rewards His servants according to our labor. And so, this, of course, is a primary calling. It's one that we drift from so easily, though, don't we? It, it just seems like many of us drift from it. Some of you don't. Some of you, this is your heartbeat and you stay on task with it all the time. And so that's why we have, as our mission statement, we go, let's say it together, we go and develop devoted followers of Jesus. And it's on your bulletin cover, you're gonna see it quite a bit this year, Um, but, and I love that it's white on black, because we are the light of the world. We are the one who brings the truth of who God is. As God gives each one of us opportunity to do that. Now, 
there are just some natural drifts away from this. And I, uh, and, and I want to, let's see, how do I say this uh, well? Um, and I've contributed to some of those drifts even as a pastor here. So I'm going to do a little bit of diagnostic right here for us at Calvary Baptist Church. And um, I want to tell you two of these kinds of drifts that um, have not helped us stay at this primary calling, each and every one of us. Now, I believe it's calling on, I, I believe all that. But there's just a couple of things that I want to share with you diagnostically about where we're at. Uh, one of the ways that I've contributed to this drift away from all of us laboring in the harvest field and making disciples of un unbelievers is by communicating that serving in a church ministry is fulfilling the call to develop devoted followers of Jesus. Uh, and I have preached a few times in Ephesians 4 where it says, you know, uh, a, a evangelists and apostles and pastors and teachers uh, were given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I've preached several times on that passage talking about how God has shaped each one of us to serve in the organizational church. Now that is absolutely true, but it's only, it's only half the truth. It's only half the truth. Um, because not only are, are believers called to serve in the so-called organization of the church, but we're all called to serve incarnationally in the world in which we live. And so it's a both and kind of deal. But here's what happens is that the people that are comfortable, more comfortable serving in a ministry then making disciples in the world, guess where they gravitate to? They say, I'm serving at church. This is my making of disciples. And that's not true. Now, hopefully it's true there. I shouldn't say that. Hopefully it's true there, but it's only, you know, so-called half the enchilada. The other half is to serve incarnationally within the world in which God has placed us. And so our individual incarnational ministry in the world of, of developing devoted followers of Jesus and our, our ministry in the organized church of developing uh, disciples, developing believers to be more devoted in their following of Jesus, it's a symbiotic relationship where both are mutually uh, fuel each other and grow each other. They're both part of the New Testament calling upon our lives as believers. So, I like math because I can finally understand things when I see it in a mathematical equation. So, here's a mathematical equation for you, which probably does some injustice to some things, but here it is, okay? So incarnational serving in the world times organizational serving in the church equals developing devoted followers of Jesus. Or here's just another way to put it. Saints going and making disciples in the world, saints serving in a healthy church equals developing devoted followers of Jesus. Now, we could have put a plus sign in there, 
But the multiplication sign emphasizes what I'm trying to say. The multiplication sign indicates that if either one of those are zeros, what do you end up with? Zero, yeah. This is why I like math. <laughs> and so if, you don't, if you're not incarnationally serving to try to develop unbelievers into a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we're not doing that as a church, and we are just meeting as a church body and we feel really good about ourselves, eh, we are deluded. On the other hand, if you're developing people into a relation to Jesus Christ, but they're not getting integrated into a, a healthy church, eh, that's not God's design. God's design is for us, each of us, to incarnationally be going and developing devoted followers of Jesus in the places in the world that he has given to us and to be serving. And I mean, it's a life-on-life incarnational ministry at church as well, but to be doing that as well. And when those two come together, then we have the New Testament model for making disciples. It's very much a both-and. And our tendency is either to go one way or the other way. And we can easily here emphasize serving at church. Now, I'm on the board for a World Venture missions organization that is doing some amazing stuff in reaching unreached people around the world. And, um, and I've so appreciated the president of World Venture, Jeff Denlinger, because Jeff is trying to turn this corner with his uh, headquarters staff in, in Colorado, Denver, Colorado, because a lot of them feel like they're making disciples by serving at the headquarters. That they don't personally need to be reaching their neighbors or the parents of the kids that their kids are going to school with. It's just a way that we often settle in and say, I'm being faithful to the Great Commission because I'm serving in a missions organization or I'm serving in a church. No. No. It's, it's both and. It has to be both and. It's the New Testament model of, of doing things in such a way. And so, that's one of the things that we just want to turn the corner a little bit more and help each of us be more faithful. While some of you don't need any encouragement, you are, you're in the world, you thrive on being in the world, you thrive on making disciples of unbelievers. Uh, a lot of us, uh, we, we struggle to keep that as a primary calling upon our lives. And so, when I say, picture this, Every single one of us having the opportunity graced by God in 2019 so that at the end of 2019, each of us would have experienced God bringing two people into his family through our lives. A lot of us thought, who are you talking about? That's not me. I serve in this ministry. And I want to say to those of us that that's what goes through our heads, no, you're selling yourself way too short. You're selling yourself way too short. By the way, who did Paul say does this work? Who? 
God. Can God work through anybody? Yeah. I, I, you know, I've said many times, if he could use a donkey, I stand a chance. <laughs> I mean, he just, and that's the point of, of chapter 1, you know. He, he goes on and says in chapter 1, verse 26, you know, if you look at you, there's not a lot of you who are very wise, according to the flesh. So, so I just beg you not to just dismiss that idea that God could use you this year to be a part of bringing two people into the kingdom of God. Now, the second thing that I want to address is that we haven't been especially helpful, I don't think, in helping us all be faithful to this as a local church. So I was hit upside the head with the proverbial two by four this past year, or maybe it was the year before, when I realized that it took Jesus three and one half years of living with 12 guys for 11 of them to be faithful to go and develop devoted followers of Jesus when he died. And I'm thinking, I, we can do it with one message a week, or maybe a six-week class, or a seminar. I mean, is that the two-by-four upside the head? Jesus, three and a half years. Oh, I can do it in an hour a week. I can get everybody going. <laughs> it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So, over the past year, we as elders and pastors have been praying and working on this and trying to figure out how to really equip the saints for this particular work of the ministry. And um, 12 of us this past year, men and women, have been gone through a discipleship process uh, to help us become more faithful in this, but also uh, thinking about how we could better equip all of us as a body of Christ to be faithful in making disciples of unbelievers. And so through that, we have, uh, we've come up with a discipleship uh, process. Uh, really, I, I think it's better communicated as a discipleship community that uh, we're going to put in place this year for anybody who would like some equipping, some envisioning, some accountability uh, to stay on task with this particular thing. Now, this isn't an add-on in the sense that uh, what we'll be looking at is how do I personally do this? If we're married, how do we do this as a couple? If I have ch children in the home, how do we do this as a family? How do I integrate this with church ministry? And so it's gonna look at, at the whole thing very holistically. Um, but I do believe that, that, that God can use every single one of us this coming year to introduce Christ to people and to see two of them say yes to Jesus. I really do believe that. Now, it's going to take some prayer. Imagine that. And it's going to take some labor in the harvest field. And that would be the emphases of what this discipleship ministry is going to be all about. 
So next, not next Sunday, two weeks from this morning, from 9 to 10, I'm going to share that with you and answer questions. And then any of you who would like to jump into that, um, you can jump into that. It will be a year-long commitment. Okay? Yeah, I know. Jesus took three and a half years. I think we can do it in a year. (laughs) I get that. So here's up front. If you commit to the year, you're committing to being a part of it for another year too. I've just realized when we try to do things quick, we miss a lot. And so we're going to be committed more for the long haul. So 9 to 10, uh, two weeks from today, we're going to meet in here. Uh, The children's ministries will all be running from 9 to 10. And so um, you'll have uh, a place for your kids to be cared for, and they can learn as well. All right, so let's, uh, let's broaden our dedication this morning. And if you would grab your bulletins and turn over to the on mission, on mission part there. Let me just kind of tell you how uh, we're going to walk down this time of dedication, and then, then we'll, we'll do that and share the Lord's Supper together. So I've broken down this on mission into individually, uh, for those who are married, marriage, for those who have family, this could be parents, could be siblings, could be your own children, or, or some of you just have real close friends that are the primary people you do life with. And I didn't put anything in there because you probably know what you sense God wanting to do in those relationships this coming year. When it comes to the church family, I just pulled three of them out of Ephesians 4, uh, a commitment to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus' calling. This wouldn't just be our, our moral walk. This would also be making disciples. I will be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Um, that, that's the Ephesians 4.2, I think it is. And I will work for the growth in love of CBCHB and the greater church body. Now, if you're visiting from another church this morning, just plug your own church in there, okay? Just plug your own church name in there, and you commit yourself to wherever your local church is. So what we're going to do is um, we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper by declaring some truth through song, and the men are going to serve us in just a minute. And uh, as they serve, as we sing, I want to ask you to think through these individual marriage, family, friends, and church family. Now, you'll notice up there that I put, I ask that he might give me the privilege of developing two people this year into a relationship following Jesus. If, if you believe that two is too many, put one. Or if, I'm not asking you to dedicate yourself to something that you don't want to dedicate yourself to them. So, If you just are not comfortable with that, you don't want to do it, just cross it out. I'd rather you be honest than pray some prayer and dedicate yourself to something that you're not going to do. That's not the point of dedication. Um, And there may be some other stuff individually that you want to ask the Lord to do. So, um, So they're going to serve. We can think through our dedications here. And then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. And then we're going to go ahead and dedicate some of our ministry leaders. And then we're going to pray for missions to wrap up our time of of dedication this morning. 
But let's remind ourselves of the great love of Christ for us and in the way that He intended, one of the ways He intended for us to do that through the Lord's Supper. And let me just read from later in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, beginning of verse 23, where the Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's sing together, let's focus our attention upon the great love of Christ towards us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and as best you know, uh, you're willing to do anything, and there's no sin that you're saying you can't have, I would encourage you to take a piece of the bread and the cup and hold it into your hands as we sing and declare these truths about who He is, and we'll partake together. When we come to dedications, it's 